You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 8. And when you have found your place, let's bow before the Lord and ask His blessing upon our time. Father, we confess to you that we have no ability in and of ourselves to understand your word just by our natural resources. It is the work of your spirit which gives us illumination and teaches us the mind of Christ and gives us understanding in spiritual things. So we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher today and that you would grant to us this teaching ministry that we might understand and learn from your truth. We desire to do this that our hearts might be yielded in humble obedience to the truth as we see it in your word and that we may never question your word, but that we may readily and willingly offer our hearts in affectionate, humble obedience. We pray that your word would create in us a hunger for your word, joy in your word, joy in our salvation, and affection for Christ. May you fill our hearts today with wonder, love, and praise through your word and by your word. For your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, anytime we begin to study a book like the Gospel of John... Uh, we end up taking quite a long time in it, so it's good occasionally to step back and remind ourselves of why the book was written. What was the author's intention? What was John writing for? When John sat down with parchment and quill to write this gospel, why did he write the things that he wrote? And in the case of John's gospel, it's not difficult to figure that out because John tells us the purpose for his book back in chapter 20. After reading all the way through the book of John, you get to the end, near the end, Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, familiar verses, and John writes this, Therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, listen, this is the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So John wants us to believe. John is not interested in just relaying certain historical facts about Christ. He's not interested in just telling us about conversations that Christ had. John has a goal in mind for his gospel, and that is to compel us to believe, to true, genuine, saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that through that faith that you and I might have eternal life and that we might enjoy eternal life and know that we have eternal life. That's why John is writing. And so throughout the gospel, we see John presenting to us reasons to believe, and he argues this in different ways. We see him offering proof for the claims of Christ to show us that the claims of Jesus are true, they are accurate, they are historical, they are believable, they are worthy of our confidence and our trust. John shows to us the dangers of unbelief. He shows to us the promises for those who believe. If you believe, you have eternal life. And you have joy. And you have exceeding joy and abundant joy. And you have the forgiveness of your sins and the cleansing of your conscience. All of these are promises that John offers to those who believe. And then on the other side, he shows to us the consequences of unbelief. In fact, we see that unbelief is irrational, it is illogical, it is stubborn, it is always due to a love for darkness, never a lack of evidence. The other thing that John does throughout his gospel is he contrasts true believers with false believers. So not only does he give us examples of those who have believed and believed truly, 
resulting in salvation, like the disciples in chapter 2, like the woman at the well in chapter 4, like the Samaritan village in chapter 4, like the nobleman and his entire family in chapter 4. But John also gives us examples of those who had a counterfeit faith, a false belief, like the crowd in chapter 2 and like the crowd in chapter 6. And now we run into another example of this false faith. And every time we see a false faith in John's gospel, it is truly tragic and truly sad. And we see another example of it now in John chapter 8. A false faith. And we studied our, our last study. We brought us up all the way through the end of verse 29 or 28. Now we come to verse 30 and verse 31 where we are told that many people believed upon Jesus. Look at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed. Now not every time that John uses the term belief or believe or believer or believing is John describing true saving faith. In fact, the inability to recognize that John uses the word belief to describe a false, counterfeit, and damning belief, failure to recognize that will lead to a lot of confusion as we go through John's Gospel. Because one of the themes of John's Gospel is to contrast fake faith with real faith. Fake discipleship with real discipleship. The illusion of eternal life with real, substantial eternal life. The person who has deceived himself into thinking he is forgiven with the person who truly is genuinely Forgiven. He contrasts the sign-based faith, the fake faith, with a true regenerating saving faith all the way through his gospel. And we see some examples of this in John. We see it in John 2. We see it in John 6. We're going to turn to there in a couple of moments and see how those sort of play into this whole, this whole contrast between false faith and true faith. We get to John chapter 8 verses 30 and 31. We have reached a turning point, a turning point in this light of the world discourse. Here's why it's a turning point. From this point forward, verses 30 and 31, from this point forward, everything is addressed to people that John says believed. People that he says believed. The rest of the discourse is addressed to, quote unquote, believers. And now the question that we are confronted with is, what type of believers were they? Were they genuine, true believers? What type of faith is this? We're going to see what type of faith it is that they have later on. So this is the turning point. From this point forward, keep in mind, John is addressing, or Jesus is addressing the rest of this discourse to those who have believed. Now, when you and I read in verses 30 and 31 that some believed in him, and from this point Jesus began to say to those who had believed, when we read that, we would expect that everything that follows those words would be kind words, encouraging words, the type of words that we hear Jesus expressing to his disciples in John chapter 2, or to his disciples in John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. We would expect a teaching words, gentle words, loving words. But that's not what we get for the rest of John 8, is it? You familiar with the rest of the discourse? From this point forward, listen, this discourse only increases in hostility, increases in tension, and the words that are spoken between Jesus and these quote-unquote believers are some of the most scornful and heated words in all of the Gospel of John. But beginning in chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, he's speaking to what? Believers. Now the question is, what kind of believers? Who are these believers? What had they believed? And how does this fit in with the Gospel of John? Was this belief real, genuine, saving faith? Or are these more of these fake believers? That's the question we're going to answer today. And since this is a turning point in the discourse, and since everything else from John 8 verse 31 all the way through John 8 verse 59 is spoken to these quote-unquote believers we want to take some time to ask ourselves, what is the evidence that these people were genuine believers? What type of quote-unquote believers were they? 
What type of believers were they? So let's answer the first question. What is the evidence that John gives us as to whether or not these were true believers or false believers? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a survey of the rest of John chapter 8 real quick. It's not going to take us the whole sermon. We're going to take a survey of the rest of John chapter 8, and we're going to ask ourselves, how does Jesus describe these people, and how do these people speak about and to Jesus? Are you ready? Beginning at verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Let's stop there for just a second. Nowhere for the rest of the chapter does the focus change. Nowhere in the rest of the chapters does John say, okay, now he's turning to the Pharisees, the hostile Pharisees. Everything that follows is spoken to those who had believed upon him. Verse 31, he is saying this to those who had believed in him. Verse 32, verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So these believers are what? Slaves to sin. And Jesus is saying, if you continue my truth, that's the evidence that you are a disciple. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free from your sin. But as of now, they're currently slaves of sin. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So these believers are seeking to kill Jesus and his word has no place in them. Verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. They have a different father than Jesus has. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. So they're seeking to kill Jesus. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Again, reaffirming, their father is not the same as Jesus' father or Abraham's heavenly father. Verse 41, they were saying to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So then the implication is that they did not love God or love the Father, and the Father was not their Father. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? They can't understand what Jesus is saying. It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But I speak the truth and you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, does that sound like a genuine believer? What you just read, does that sound like a description of a believer? They were still slaves of sin, verse 34. They were seeking to kill Jesus, verses 37, 40, and 44. They had no place for the words of Jesus, verse 38. They were doing the deeds of Satan, verse 41. They have, they do not have God as their father, verse 42. They do not love Jesus, verse 42. They did not understand Jesus. They could not hear Jesus' word, verse 43. They were of the devil, verse 44. They did not believe the truth, verse 45. They did not believe Jesus, verse 46. They were not of God, verse 47. They dishonored Jesus, verse 49. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, verse 52. They had not come to know God, verse 55. They were liars, verse 55, and they picked up stones to kill Jesus. Does that list that I just read to you sound like a, the description of a genuine true believer to you? But yet John says in verse 30 and 31, they had believed in him. What is going on? What type of believers are these? Do you realize that Scripture... In fact, we could just go into the Gospel of John and we could see how a genuine believer is contrasted with that list that I just gave you on every point. You could go somewhere in the Gospel of John and see where Jesus never describes a true believer in these terms. But a true believer is always someone who hears the voice of the shepherd, loves the voice of the shepherd, comes to the shepherd, knows the Father, knows the Son, loves the Son, hears the Son, obeys the Son... Their father is not Satan, their father is God. And yet, listen to that description that I just gave you. These are believers? Verse 30 and 31. What type of believers are these? These are the same type of believers that we have encountered on two other occasions in John's Gospel. This is not the first time that we have read of these type of believers. In fact, I want you to look at both of these other occasions real briefly. Back in chapter 2, turn back to chapter 2 of John's Gospel. The end of chapter, verse 23. We're going to look at these two other occasions. This happens right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is in Jerusalem. This happens just days after he had cleansed the temple. The beginning of his public ministry. He had the confrontation with the Pharisees over the cleansing of the temple. Verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Notice the reference to belief. Verse 24, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Who's the them? Those who had believed in Him because of the signs. Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. Why not? Verse 25, or verse 24, Because He knew all men, and because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what was in man. So He had been miracles in Jerusalem. Many people came to believe on Him. They saw the signs, and they embraced Him on some level, and believed upon Him on some level. But Jesus did not entrust Himself to them, because Jesus knew that a sign-based faith is no faith at all. You do a trick and you can get anybody to believe in you. You do a miracle and anyone will believe in you. But when trials come and temptations come, then will they be committed to Him? And John says Jesus on His part did not commit Himself to them. They were willing to commit themselves to Him, believe upon Him, but Jesus knew their hearts and He knew that their faith which they had because of the signs was a shallow, insufficient, unsaving, unredeeming, human-based, sign-based faith. And Jesus did not commit Himself to them. Now I ask you this question. Does Jesus ever not commit Himself to a true believer? Does Jesus ever not commit Himself to a true believer? No. Not at all. He loves His sheep. He knows His sheep. They hear His voice. They come to Him. He gives them eternal life. He raises them up. He saves them. 
Jesus said, I have come to save and to secure and to sanctify those whom the Father has given to me. They will all come and I will raise them all up on the last day. Jesus is fully, faithfully, and completely committed to those who have a true saving faith in him. But not the crowd in John 2. Why? Because their faith was a sign-based faith. That's the first occasion where we read of these fake believers. Now to turn over to John chapter 6. This is the second occasion. We were here not too long ago. Not too long ago for us as well, it's not too long ago. It's actually a whole year ago that we were in John 6. Can you believe that? A whole year ago that we were in John 6, looking at this very passage. John 6, I look at verse 2. A large crowd, and because it was so recently, I'm not going to give you the whole chapter, but we're just going to hit a couple of the high points. John 6, verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Once again, they're following him. Why? Because of the signs, right? They saw the signs. Healing the sick, raising the dead, curing the lepers, all of that. They saw the signs. And they were following him around. He was doing the signs. They wanted to see the signs. So he had a crowd. He did some more signs. He multiplied the bread and the fish. And this created in them almost an unparalleled exuberance. Look down at verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself. He refused their overtures of making him the king of the nation. He didn't want that. He didn't want that because he knew that their faith was a shallow faith. In fact, all of John chapter 6, the entire chapter and the whole discourse, is dedicated to doing this, drawing a line in the sand between true disciples and false disciples. That's the whole point of John 6. The bread of life discourse is intended to show us the difference between true disciples and false disciples. So those who had come to take him by force and make him king, the very next day followed him to the other side of the sea. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And by that, Jesus means you're seeking after me not because you understood the signs. You didn't see the signs and understand it. In other words, the sign did not have any instructive value to them at all. But they saw the signs and they didn't get it. And now they're coming to him for an even baser motive, which was that they wanted free food. And Jesus didn't give him free food. In fact, he used the idea of food and the bread that they were requesting as an illustration. He went into the bread of life discourse and he said to them, he demanded of them true discipleship, which was the willingness to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And Jesus was demanding total and complete and unhindered, unquestioning obedience, affection and love and faith. And what did the people do when they got to the end of the whole discourse? After he told them, my father is sovereign. I am sovereign. I am here to save all that the Father has given to me. No one can come to me. You cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. But listen, if the Father has given you to me, and if the Father is drawing you to me, then you will come, then you will believe, and I will save you and secure you to the end of time and for all of eternity. That was His promise. And we got to the end of the whole thing. And what did the people do? Verse 16, 60, Therefore many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Jesus knew their hearts, right? What was the bread of life discourse intended to do? To whittle down the group of believers from 6,000 or 5,012 to 12. And they all left. When he gave them strong teaching, they all left. But a true disciple does not respond like that. Look at verse 66. As a matter, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away also, do you? Now listen to the confession of a true disciple after hearing hard demanding teaching from the Lord. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the confession of a true disciple. Listen, when you encounter, when a a believer, a quote-unquote believer encounters hard teaching from Jesus Christ, a true, genuine believer will respond with this. Okay, I will embrace that. I will do that. I will obey that. 
I will love that. And I will submit myself to him because he is my Lord. A fake believer responds to hard teaching with this. I don't know. Let me think about it. Um, not sure. I don't know. Maybe not. That's how a fake believer responds. Or they turn and they walk away. What was Jesus doing in John chapter 6? A crowd of people who believed in him, wanted to make him king. And he taught in such a way as to whittle that down so that there was just true believers left. Only 12. One of them was a devil, and that's Judas. One of them was there, but there are actually 11 genuine true believers left. And Judas should have left with the rest, but he didn't. He hung around because he had the money bag. Now we see the same thing happening in John chapter 8, the light of the world discourse. And Jesus has laid down tough demands. And now in verse 30, back to John chapter 8, now in verse 30 and 31, we find some people who have come to believe upon him. So what does Jesus do for the rest of the discourse? Same thing he did in John 6. He taught them in such a way as to demand of them true commitment and true discipleship. And all he is doing for the rest of John chapter 8 is showing that their belief was nothing more than a facade to hide their murderous, rebellious, unsubmissive, pride-filled heart. That's all their belief was. It was merely a mask to hide the rebellion that was truly underneath. He demonstrates through pushing them and pushing their buttons to show that they really did intend to kill him. As much as they said, we believe upon him, they really had murderous intentions all along. And their belief was nothing more than a shallow facade to hide that. That is the horrible consequences of unbelief. So, these people in verses 30 and 31, are they true believers? No, they're not. The same type of people we saw in chapter 2, the same type of people we've seen in John chapter 6, and now we see them again in John chapter 8, and Jesus is doing the same thing he did in chapter 6. He's pushing them and demanding true discipleship until the facade breaks down and falls away, and they are seen to be exactly what he knows them to be. Children of Satan who are not of God and who do not belong to him because their hearts have not been humbled with repentant faith. That's what's going on in John chapter 8, and that is the nature of these believers. We find false converts all the way through Scripture, by the way. James mentions those who have a faith that does not save them, cannot save them, because it's a dead faith. It's not accompanied by works. It's not a true and living faith. But there are some who have a faith, right? We read in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, which we read at the beginning, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, but then when temptation comes, they fall away. We read about them in Hebrews chapter 10, right before the chapter on faith, which demonstrates the nature of true faith. It illustrates it with all the saints of the Old Testament in the Faith Hall of Fame. The writer to Hebrews in 10 verse 38 says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do you hear that? If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. There are some who have faith, and then when trials and temptations come, they shrink back. They don't want anything to do with it. But the author of Hebrews says, we are not of those. We are not of those who have faith and then shrink away to destruction. We are those who have a true faith, which results in the persevering of the soul. Hebrews chapter 10. Look, there are false teachers, there are false gospels, there are false Christs, there are false gods, false lords, false teaching, false prophets, there are false everything. Should it not surprise us that Satan would also masquerade as an angel of light and provide for us false faith? Doesn't that make sense? There is a false side of everything in Christianity that the devil provides. And faith is no different. It is possible to have a false faith. I would be willing to bet that everybody in this room knows somebody like this. Right? At one time they were a loving, godly, wonderful individual. Sunday school teacher, deacon, 
elder, pastor of a church, taught the adult Sunday school class, and and was really on fire with the Lord, went on short-term missions, became a missionary for a period of time, and today, where are they? They make no profession of faith, they don't want anything to do with Christ, they're not interested in spiritual things, have no love for the truth whatsoever, they're not walking with God at all. In fact, they're totally apostatized from the faith. Raise your hand if you know somebody like that. Right? I went to college, Bible, 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 college, with a number of them. Had conversations with some of them. Today, they don't want anything to do with Christ whatsoever. And at one time, they were the top of the class. They seemed to love truth, and they were going on with Him. What happened? Lose their salvation? If you have seen this happen in somebody's life, this is the explanation for it. They weren't believers who fell away and lost their salvation. They were never true believers to begin with. The Bible is filled with examples of this. There are tares among the wheat. There are goats among the sheep. There are people who think they are saved who are not saved whatsoever. The Bible's filled with examples and illustrations of that, and we see it here in John chapter 8. A bunch of people who believed in him, but they were of their father, the devil. And they did not belong to God. They were not of God, and their belief was merely a facade for a period of time to cover some corrupt motives. Listen, friends, this is tragic. It is tragic. You know people like that? I know them. And it's tragic, isn't it? You hate to see it happen. But they deceive themselves into thinking that they're true believers and they're not. And eventually they leave. And at least, listen, they're very leaving the faith is evidence that they were never actually in the faith to begin with. John, the author of first, the author of this gospel writes in his first epistle, chapter two, all of the evidences of salvation. By this you know you're saved, right? You love the truth. You love the people of the truth. You love the word of God. You respond to good teaching. Uh, you, you pursue, pursue holiness. You conform to the image of Christ. All of those evidences of true salvation in first John chapter two. But John, or first John, but in John chapter two, John was aware that there were some people who had a facade of faith, who kept it up for a period of time and then left. He describes them in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not all of us. Why do people leave the faith? They leave the faith because they have the type of faith described in John 2, John 6, and John 8. They don't have true faith. True faith results in the persevering of the soul. True faith results in true discipleship. And those who leave just give evidence by leaving that they really were not truly born again to believe with that, to begin with. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you be in the faith. If you pass the test. Do you know you're saved? Are you a genuine true believer or are you the type of believer described in John 2, John 6 and John 8? The type of person who believes but his belief is merely a facade for his rebellion. There are really three elements of true saving faith. And this could sort of begin a test for you. There are three elements of true saving faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Let me give you the three. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge is knowing certain facts. I know that Jesus claimed to be God. I know that the Bible is real. I know that Jesus died on a cross. I know that He rose again. I know that salvation is by grace through faith in Him alone and that by believing in Him, I can have eternal life. I know all of that. That is all up here. This is all head knowledge. I know these facts. In order to be saved, you have to know certain facts. You have to have knowledge of certain truths. But true saving faith, that's not enough to save you, by the way, because demons know certain facts, don't they? People in hell know certain facts. A lot of unbelievers know certain facts. False teachers know certain facts. People know things. Knowing something does not save you. Knowing the truth does not save you. The second element to true saving faith is assent. You must not only know something, but you have to assent to it. You have to say, 
I believe that this is actually true. Not only do I know these facts, but I'm willing to confess and acknowledge that this is true truth. This is actually true. These are eternal verities that we are talking about. That these truths actually describe reality as it is. That is assent. It is not only thinking and knowing it, but it is affirming it. Vocally, confessing it. I believe it to be true. And I believe it with all my heart to be true. But listen, if I know the truth and I believe it with all my heart to be true, is that enough to save me? Do the demons know the truth? Do they believe it with all their being? They absolutely do. And they tremble, James says. You know what else is required? Not only must I know the truth and assent to the truth, but I have to trust myself to the one who is the truth. That is an act of my will. That is an act of my intentions and my desires where I actually say, not only do I know it and not only do I confess it and believe it to be true, but I am trusting myself to that. That is salvation. If you have knowledge, you cannot be saved. Knowledge only. If you have knowledge and assent only, you cannot be saved because the demons have knowledge and the demons have assent. But the one thing that the demons lack and that every unbeliever lacks is trusting himself, believing and trusting himself to that which is true. Knowledge, assent, and real faith. That is trusting it and casting my hope upon it and believing upon it for salvation. That is what true, genuine, saving faith is. It has to have those three elements. So now we ask the question in John chapter 8, what did these folks, these believers in John 8, what did they actually believe? What is it that they believed? Where did their belief fall short? Why was it inadequate? Why was it insufficient to save? Ultimately, John does not answer that question for us. He doesn't reveal in the text anything that tells us why their belief fell short, why it didn't actually save them. But we do know this, it failed to save them, right? Because you're not dealing with people who are genuinely believers in verse 30 and then children of Satan in verse 44. As if they were genuinely saved and then lost their salvation in 14 verses, right? Three sentences and all of a sudden they're unsaved again? That's not possible. That's not what we're dealing with. So John doesn't tell us why their faith did not save them. He simply shows us that it was an inadequate faith and it did not save them. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, takes a stab at what it is that they might have believed. Ryle writes this, These Jews only believed that our Lord was one sent from heaven and deserved attention. In other words, Ryle says that's, that's as far as their faith went, that he was sent from heaven. You could actually go up into the previous verses in John chapter 8, everything from verse 12 all the way through to the end of verse 29, and you could make a list of all the things that they could have believed without being saved. They could have believed that he was sent from heaven. They could have believed that he was the Son of God. They could have believed that he spoke from the Father. They could have believed that everything he did was pleasing to the Father. They could have believed that he spoke only the truth and that he was the judge of all the world. They could have affirmed all of those things mentally and with assent and still remain unsaved. You want proof of that? Everything that I have just said, a Jehovah's Witness could affirm or a Mormon could affirm. They could affirm all of those truths. Are they saved? No, because it's not genuine true trust in the, in the correct Christ. They could have affirmed everything. They could have said, he's the light of the world. Not only do I know it, but I believe it. Let me ask you a question. Could they have affirmed and believed that he was the I Am, the eternal God, and still been unsaved? Could they have believed that? Could they have given knowledge or affirmed knowledge of that truth? Yeah, we believe he is the eternal God. Could they have affirmed that and still been unsaved? Do demons affirm that? It is possible to know and to confess that Jesus is God and still hate him, isn't it? They could have believed everything he said and been willing to give assent to all of that and still remained in their sin. That is what it, that is what they believed. That is what, that is where they fell short. 
Leon Morris says clearly they were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield to him the far-reaching allegiance that true, real trust in him implies. They could have believed all of that and still been unsaved. Now listen, this is the real danger that is presented to every soul that is here today. This is the real danger. That you and I could affirm and know certain truths and even give confession to an orthodox statement of faith and yet remain unchanged by it and unwilling to obey and assent and humble ourselves under what we believe and say is true. That is the real danger. J.C. Ryle says, The extent to which men may be intellectually convinced of the truth of religion and know their duty while their hearts are unrenewed and they continue in sin is one of the most painful phenomena in the history of human nature. End quote. And it is. It's one of the greatest tragedies of the last 2,000 years. The degree to which people can know, assent to, but remain unrepentant and unrenewed and still in their sin, even though they know it and they give assent to it with their mouths. They do not entrust themselves to the truth. They will not humble themselves to the truth. Is this possible for you? I'm not trying to shake you out of your security as a believer, but is it is this possible that what I'm describing here actually reflects you? You don't love the truth? You're not committed to the truth? You're not willing to obey the truth? You don't love, you, you're not willing to humble yourself and submit yourself to the truth? Obedience to you is optional. Everything here is a game. But you really don't show affectionate love and humble, penitent faith toward the truth because it doesn't really impact your life. It's possible it describes you. What else might be the cause of such uh, half-hearted obedience or even lack of obedience altogether? Could it be possible that you are the same type of believer that is in verse 30 and 31? Because you have no passion for the loss, no real love for Christ, no real commitment to the truth, because you have never been renewed by it. You know it, you assent to it, but you are unwilling to submit, to obey it, and to receive it with affection. Could that be you? Now you say, Jim, you're shaking me in my assurance. It sounds to me like you're suggesting that, I mean, here we had gone through John chapter 6, and and I thought I was secure in my salvation. I mean, I thought there was nothing that could shake me out of this. And now all of a sudden you're starting to sound like you're suggesting that I, I might be able to lose my salvation after all. I'm not actually talking about genuine believers losing their salvation. I'm talking about genuine believers this whole, this whole time. It's not genuine believers in John 2, not genuine believers in John 6, or in John 8. These are fake believers. The Bible teaches the security of the believer and the insecurity of the make-believer. The make-believer is the false convert. The one who has heard it, received it for a while, put on the facade, embraced it outwardly, but his heart has remained unrenewed. The true believer is genuinely fully and eternally secure. And the genuine believer should never doubt his salvation. The one who has passed the test and knows that they are saved and has really put saving faith in Christ and the type of believer described in the rest of the Gospel of John that has eternal life should never doubt that. Because we have the confidence that all that the Father has given to the Son, He will save, He will sanctify, and He will secure everlastingly. And we are safe in Him. He knows who His sheep are. His sheep hear His voice. They come to Him. He gives them eternal life. And no one will ever snatch them out of His hand. That is safe and secure as it is possible to be. But the unbeliever, the believing unbeliever, or the unbelieving believer, is as insecure as it is possible to be. It is my honest heart's desire for everybody here, for my family, and for myself, that we might have genuine, true, saving faith. 
and that we might know it and love it and submit to it and willingly obey the one who is not only our Savior, but also our King. If you miss heaven by one millimeter, if you miss heaven by one millimeter, you might as well miss it by a light year because the consequences are the same. The only difference is when you miss it by a millimeter, your judgment is more severe because you heard the truth, you knew the truth, you feigned a love for the truth, and in hypocrisy you rejected and resisted the truth for your entire life. If you miss heaven by that much, you might as well miss it by a light year because you will spend eternity under the wrath of God because as a hypocrite, you played the part, you played the part, but you never really truly repented and loved Christ. May God grant that none of us are the type of believer in John 8:30 30 and 31. Examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith, to see if you pass the test. There is a test given in verse 31 and verse 32, which we will begin looking at next time. Let's bow our heads together. Father, these are serious and somber words of warning to us. We thank you for the illustration in this gospel, not only of what true saving faith is, but also of what faith, uh, fake and counterfeit faith looks like. God, it is a damning error to believe that we are saved and to feign that salvation for the sake of others or our own appearances and yet to remain a hypocrite, unmoved by and unhumbled by the truth. Grant, O God, that those who are here who may be playing the part of a hypocrite might take serious warning and that you might save them by granting them true repentance and drawing them to your Son. May those of us who are playing fake with our faith, be shaken by what we see in the Gospel of John, knowing that the consequences are severe and eternal. And may you grant to us, God, hearts of humble surrender to your truth and love for your truth, that we might be changed by your truth and that by obedience to it and obedience to Christ our King, that we might glorify you both now and forever. May your grace, the grace of the Father and the love of Christ and the fellowship of the Spirit rest upon all those who belong to you both now and in eternity. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.